Hello, and welcome to Revolution 22's teaching podcast. We are a church from the downtown area in Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today and hearing this week's sermon. We pray that God's word will be received and will bear fruit in your life. Well, good morning. Feel free to have a seat. It's good to see everyone. We are continuing this morning on through the second main section in James, this idea of being obedient to the word. Uh, Brian Rome did a great job of kicking off this section two weeks ago in James 1, 19 through 20. As we've seen several times throughout James, one of his main goals is that we would desire to be found perfect and complete in the Lord Jesus. And as he says in James 1, 19 through 20, one of the ways to think about that is that we might be seen as the very righteousness of God. For James, uh, he he talks about in that beginning section, choosing to not be angry uh, is one of the ways that we would understand the righteousness of God. God is not quick to anger. And in fact, for James, that idea goes hand in hand with being quick to hear and slow to speak. Brian rightly helped us remember that, that these, these verses come back up again. In fact, James does something throughout this letter that's kind of foreign to us. He kind of just does circles through different topics, and he comes back to them again and again. We're going to see again how, how James wants to speak about our heart, our tongue, our ability to care for others, and how that exemplifies our walking out our faith in God as sons and daughters. You know, I was thinking about it. It's interesting how those characteristics of being quick to listen, being slow to speak, being slow to anger, play out all the time in our walk daily with God. God, and you and I, we have, we have countless examples of how God is, is very quick to listen and to not push us away through our prayers. We, we have examples of how God has been slow to speak, to, to say hard and difficult things to us. I mean, even if today you're in a moment where you feel like there's difficult things that you've been told recently, imagine if you sat down and God just dumped all the areas on you that you needed to grow in all at once. How hard that would be. He is so slow to bring those things to us that we might grow slowly over time in his grace and mercy. And God has been so slow to anger at us in our sin and our lack of faith. And it's so amazing that when we look at scripture, we see that same characteristics played out again and again throughout scripture. Have you noticed that so much of the Old Testament is there and showing us different people in their walks with the Lord that we might have encouragement that if God can love people like that, he can love me and you, (laughs) right? God, if he loves sinners like them, he, he, he saved liars. He saved adulterers. He saved murderers. He spoke kindly and lovingly to pagans and wooed them to himself that they might have faith in him. He was slow to anger with a people who wandered in the wilderness for 40 years while he made sure their clothing didn't wear out and that they had food and sustenance every single day. God's righteousness is demonstrated again and again in his speech, in his listening, in his love, in his patience, in ways that are so not like our inclinations. And that's so good. It's so good that God is that kind of God and that As Brian said, he is working to make us complete and perfect in Jesus. He he quoted 2 Corinthians 5.21, which says that God is making us the very righteousness of God in Jesus. 
Last week, Jack took the next step, and he brought us to, to James 1, through 27, which is kind of still part of the introduction of this section about being obedient to the word, and he tried to encourage us on what it means to be doers of the word. You know, Jack helped us to see that God ultimately wants to see true religion that is walked out in ways like, like loving the poor and widow, like, like keeping our tongue bridled, remaining unstained by the world. You know, James' challenge to us is that we're deceiving ourselves if we think that we truly know and love God, yet we go out and don't walk in ways that are commensurate with that love of God. <clears throat> we're like someone, as James says, who looks at our own reflection and forgets who we are. We forget that we're beloved sons and daughters of God, that we're emissaries of the Most High, that we're here to spread his love and joy that all might see and come to know him. And Jack gave us that great picture of all of his clothes on and this idea that our job is to try to slowly take off all the filth and sin as much as God might show it to us in our lives that we might know him and love him and implant instead in our hearts the very word of God to know Jesus and to walk with him daily. You know, in the section that we're moving into today, this morning, James 2, 1 through 13, James is kind of moving away from generalities to more specific. And today he starts with the specific example of God's righteousness and the problem when we are partial towards other people. You know, talking about partiality is kind of difficult because it's complicated. Partiality can sometimes be neutral and it can even be good. I'm partial to McDonald's. Some of you might be partial to tofu. That shouldn't be a problem for our relationship with each other. We can go wherever it is that you might buy tofu. I don't know where. And we can sit down with me eating my quarter pounder with cheese and we can be good friends. You know, some of you might be partial this morning to the Chiefs. Some of you might be partial to the Eagles. We should be able to hang out with each other today and love one another through those differences. <clears throat> Most of us, we're partial to sunny days, good smells, and even order and cleanliness. Some of us might be partial towards music. Some of us might be partial towards movies. Some of us are partial to quality time while others appreciate gifts. You know, many of the ways that we are partial are part of our upbringing, and even sometimes they're hardwired into who we are by God, even at birth. Many of you might even have, like, smells that you're partial to, the smell of the house that you grew up in, a meal, maybe even a perfume or cologne, something that in an instant brings you back to a joyful idea, and in that way, you're partial to it. Different aspects of our lives speak to our hearts and arouse our affection the way other things don't. And those are good and glorious partialities that God has built into us that we might demonstrate the breadth of what he loves and how wonderful this world is. But sadly, we also know that partiality can be a very ugly thing, especially when we preference something that's neither good nor bad. You know, no matter the reason we show this type of partiality, when we're not on the receiving end as a person, of that kind of partiality, that kind of preference, it's very painful. You know, that's the kind of partiality that James wants to talk about today. Now look at our passage as we start here in James 2.1. He says this, My brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Lord. And that's the main point of our section today, and it's fairly easy to understand as we walk in our faith with Jesus, as we behold our God as glorious and wonderful again and again, we are meant to see and live a life that shows no partiality. 
The Greek phrase that's being interpreted here as partiality is really an odd phrase. It means before the face or receiving the face. In other words, we have an English phrase that helps us with this, to not receive things at face value. You know, we, we, we were say, when we say that, that's almost exactly what James is wanting us to think about. Don't use what you see externally to judge someone or something. You know, this was one of those phrases that it seems that the New Testament authors had to kind of invent. They were in a culture, a Roman culture, that had different positions that you were just placed in, usually from birth, and you weren't meant to move around within those positions. And so they had to come up with this way to describe partiality, seeing things different and structured different ways, and to say, that's not always good. That's bad oftentimes. And it's this phrase that helps us realize that, that James is talking about that kind of partiality, not the good kind, but the bad kind. You know, this is the kind that is hurtful. It's a partiality that comes from judging people, situation, and moments by an outward expression that ignores the inward heart and also ignores that it's God himself who is oftentimes behind the position and the place that people find themselves in. You know, one way we all can tell how big of a problem this is in culture in general is by how often we try to engage young people about it. There are so many movies, so many books, so many TV shows that the general theme is don't judge a book by its cover. We have this propensity as humans, and we've noticed that it starts even very, very little, that we would look at things and judge it quickly by what we see outwardly. You know, when, when my kids were young, we had a neighbor across the street who, praise God, eventually came to faith in Jesus Christ and still walks with him today. But when I first met him, his normal evening ritual was to come outside and drink a beer and chain smoke three or four cigarettes because his girlfriend wouldn't let him go inside the house while he was smoking. And I was like, this is fantastic. He's a captive audience. He can't go anywhere. (laughs) He's stuck on his property outside. So I'd go over and we'd chit-chat, talk about the gospel, engage with him on that. And I remember coming home one day, and my my children, they're probably under six, seven. Several of them said to me, Papa, why do you hang out with so-and-so? He's bad. And I was like, oh, that's, that's, that's weird. Why, 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 do you, why, why is he bad? What are you thinking? And they said, oh, he smokes. He's bad. Now, I don't know if it was Sesame Street. I don't know if it was Barney. I don't know if it was a book that we read to them. Somewhere they made the connection that smoking is usually very unhealthy if you do it a lot. That, that means that's bad. Therefore, this person is bad. Right, That made me so sad to realize that they'd gone all the way down that road, and now this man who needed to know Jesus Christ in their mind was bad, and we shouldn't even talk to him. You know, Obviously, my neighbor had a choice to smoke or not, and that seems so foreign in our culture where we've banned all smoking in almost every form in public. You know, Smoking can be unhealthy, and it can become a sin, but it's not intrinsically a sin in and of itself. However, unlike that example, so often the partiality that we experience doesn't just come from choices. It comes from things that we can't change. Things like our nationality, our skin color, our language, our intellect, our gender. There are so many ways that people do and might experience partiality in their lives. And for me, I experienced that a little bit in third grade. <clears throat> it was during the summer between my second to third grade. I woke up one morning and I had a huge scab on the crown of my head. Didn't know what happened. My parents didn't remember sleepwalking, didn't remember whacking myself. My mom gently, nicely tried to clean it up, but throughout the day it started bleeding more again. There's no noticeable big wound. In fact, over the next couple days, more of them appeared over my whole head. 
So, of course, as any good parent would do, took me to the doctors, took me to the dermatologist, and no one could figure out right away what was going on. The best idea they had for my mom was to shave my head as best she could around all these wounds, and then every morning peel the scabs off, take a bucket of soapy water, and clean them out. I praise God that I don't have a whole lot of memories from that season. I do remember sitting on the patio and crying. I do remember my mom crying, having to do what she was asked to do, to do our best to stop things. You know, I, I, don't, I don't share that story that you would feel sympathy or the pain. I, I actually wanted to share it so you could imagine what that would look like. Imagine this, this little kid, second to third grade, walking around with like just this janky cut hair trying to deal with what's going on there. Scabs that were likely peeled off the day before and just looked awful. I mean, I looked a mess. I probably looked contagious. Uh, and people can be really harsh, right? Friends that I'd had for a long time in the neighborhood were not saying very nice things to me. They didn't want to hang out. Even adults going out in public, I quickly learned I wanted to hide it under a hat because even adults would whisper and kind of pull back. In fact, more than the pain of that situation physically, what I remember was the pain of being pushed away and feeling unclean, feeling unwanted, you know, obviously, you can tell eventually the doctors figured out what was going on. I actually had a disease called carry-on, which is almost predominantly in African-American people. So growing up in the 1980s in Boise, Idaho, being me, that was not the first thing that they thought was going on with me. But they were finally able to figure out the right medicine to give me. It came back. I do still have scars from it, but my doctor was kind, told third grade me, hey, when you're going bald someday when you're older, you won't even notice the scars. And that was oddly reassuring. <laughs> Now, I'm not trying to equate my few painful months. Uh, they were such a blip in the scheme of life at the end of the time to some of the atrocities of partiality that we see in our world. You know, I do not know what it would be like to be a woman, to have the partiality of sexism and misogyny aimed at me my entire life. I have no context what it would have been like and is still like for many people who are black or African-American in communities where they still receive partiality or did in atrocious ways that our country committed against them and still commits. I have not experienced many partialities of ageism, classism, intellectualism, ableism, yet all of us in small ways or very heinous ways have experienced partialities against us in our life. And maybe you said something at the wrong moment that made someone think you were a nerd or, or, or opposite made you think you weren't really intelligent. You know, maybe you wore an outfit one day that, that made someone think something about your sexuality, about your income in ways that were frustrating or hurtful. Maybe it's because of your heritage or even a spoken idiom that you use often or physical traits. All of these face value judgments are in James's mind. And we're going to see more of that as we keep unpacking this section. But I really appreciate that James starts where he starts. He starts here with those who are rich and high in status and those who are poor and low in status. And I think that's very relevant for us in our culture today, here in our city, in our time. You know, we, we have a tendency to think that we're not partial if we're not doing one of the big ones, if we're not racist, if we're not sexist. Yet, partiality can seep into our lives in so many ways. You know, the fact that James makes it so specific here it makes most scholars believe this is something that he was seeing very directly in the community around them. 
And we've talked about how for these Jewish Christians that were being persecuted, that they were being pushed out across the empire and the Roman Empire, they were struggling with finances. They were struggling with how does that work out? And they were displaced. And yet it seems that they were struggling with money in a very different way as well. It seems that they were wanting to preference those who had money, preference those who have status. And you can maybe even imagine why, if you're displaced, why you would be drawn to people who could status-wise affirm you, help you. Look what James says here in James 2, 2 through 4. He says, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in a shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down at my feet, then have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? This is the main example that James goes to for partiality for his audience. Uh, this idea, again, of status, high, rich, poor, lowly status. You know, James sets up the situation like this. There's a meeting going on. And, and that word for meeting, you all know, it's synagogue. It's usually used of a Jewish meeting place, but it could also just be a meeting place in general. And James says it's your meeting, right? So, so these Jewish Christians have, have either taken over a synagogue, and that's where they're meeting, or it's just their meeting in general where they're, where they're at. And two different people come in. First one comes in, he's wearing a gold ring and fine clothing. Right? Now, now, gold ring obviously could just be wealth in general, but it likely was more specifically a special kind of gold ring. See, the, the second class of Roman citizens, there was the senators who were the top, and then the equestrian class. They wore signet rings, gold signet rings all the time to show and remind everyone what group they were in and how special they were. And then we have this other word, fine clothing. It's also translated other places in Scripture as bright Shining. In fact, it's used of heavenly beings in places like Acts 10, uh, Revelations 15. So whether we're talking about social status or just their wealth or probably both, there is no missing that this person is kind of exuding that everywhere with everything that they are doing. They're supposed to be seen as exceptional, different, and special in all those ways. You know, the other person's the exact opposite. They're described as being poor, clearly a monetary statement. And then they're talked about having shabby clothing. That, that word, shabby clothing, is the same one that Jack talked about last week, talking about filthy, implying not just dirtiness, necessarily the state of their clothing itself, but likely even sin. This is a person that came in like the tax collector, the prostitute, someone that everyone's looking at them and they know what they do. So again, whether we're just talking about their poverty, their financial state, they don't look great, but probably even likely that this is someone who doesn't have life all put together. They are noticing, and they're in control. This group makes a decision when the people come in. Look what James says here. He says, if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. The logic here means that the first section is not necessarily bad, right? To show grace and niceness to a visitor coming to your house, coming to any sort of meeting is a really nice thing to do, poor or rich, to care for them, to, to help them out. Jesus has many parables talking about doing that thing, to love all people, invite them in. He parables about wedding feasts, different things. And in Luke 14, he says this in particular, though. He says, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, 
the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. The problem for the Christians that James is writing to is that they are not honoring all people, and they're especially not helping the poor that are mentioned here. Notice again the word in the middle here, while. The rich person comes in and they say, come have a wonderful seat up front at the front of the church. We're doing some great stuff here today. While at the exact same moment are saying to this person who looks shabby, poor, sinful, you go stand over there. You sit at my feet. This phrase for sit at our feet is really weird. It's literally sit under my footstool which most translators don't know what to do because footstools back in that day were like a foot tall. They were just these little like pieces of wood that were there to put your feet on because your chairs weren't super tall either, right? And, and in that day, and in still in a lot of cultures today, sitting on the floor is not abnormal. That's fairly common. So it seems that the request here was a rather demeaning statement. Get even under my feet, as low as you can get. You're not even meant to be here purposely looking down on them and putting them in a place of clear inferiority. James's indictment of this is very clear. Then have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? That phrase, making distinctions, is meant to push us back again to the beginning of James. Back to where we learn in James 1.5 and James 1.17 that our God is singular. He is wholly devoted to showing love. He does not change. He does not have different patterns like the moon or the stars in the skies. Rather, he is wholeheartedly always only good to his people. Here, by being partial over one to another, we've made a distinction We have not been singular in our love for people, regardless of our external perceptions of them. We we might want to say that we don't show partiality, especially when we think about those worst kinds. But I think this example is true of us on many levels. I mean, I was convicted about it when I thought about it this way. I thought about how often I walk down the street and I pass by so many people and I don't think almost anything about them. But I can tell you, if I pass by a celebrity, there at least would be an internal conversation going on of, do I talk to them? Do I ask them for an autograph? Do I try to get a selfie with them? Well, having not cared at all about anyone else that I had just passed by. I would be showing partiality for their social status, for, for what they've accomplished, for why I appreciate them. I mean, there are so many other ways that that can play out in our life Do you you choose to only hang out with people who can afford to go do the fun things that you like to do, to to eat at the restaurants that you like to eat out? Do you show partiality by only hanging out with people who dress like you, the people that are only your same age because they can understand exactly where you're coming from? Again, for James, it's clear that this idea of, 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 of preferencing or giving priority to those who have high social status and are rich over those who are poor is one of the main concerns he has. And we can see that in the, in the descriptions of why he would say not to do it. Uh, he gives two different arguments. First, he talks about why would you not want to love the poor? And this is what he says. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, 
Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, the kingdom which he has promised to those who loved him? But rather, you've dishonored the poor man? You can hear in these verses Jesus' words kind of echoing out of James as he spent so much time with Jesus. You know, Jesus saying things like this, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. You know, poor here is talking both about real poverty, lack of, of physical, tangible assets, but it's also talking about a heart condition. That's why James can say that they will be rich in faith in God. It can be more than poverty, but it's not less than that. You know, James's point is that God chooses the poor. Why won't you? Now, Paul says this about us in 1 Corinthians 1. He says this. He says, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the, th- and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. That's you and me. That's what he's saying is almost all of our heritage is that we're not. We're nothing special and the Lord still chose us. If that was true of us, if that was true of most of the Jewish Christians, how can they look down on these poor people. Why wouldn't we want to treat them well? Most of us were no different than that, especially in how wise we appear and how humble we were before the Lord when he picked us. And James then turns next and takes, okay, if that one side is, why wouldn't you at least love the poor? Because God loves them. He loved you. You're like them. He turns to the other side of the argument, which is, why would you preference the rich? This is kind of a hard, a hard take against the rich, but he makes three main arguments here. He says this. He says, are not the rich the ones who, one, oppress you? And the way the logic is written here is that it's implied. The answer is yes. That's what they are. He says, and two, the ones who drag you into court. Again, the implied answer is yes. And three, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name, the name of Christian? by which you are called? And the implied answer is yes. It's a very practical argument that James is trying to remind us that it's rarely the lowly, the powerless, the poor who oppress others. They don't have the social standing. They don't have the money. They don't have the wherewithal and the means to use anything at their disposal to to bring difficulty on others. In fact, most often it's those who have social status, those who have money, who do that sort of thing. It's because of their power and wealth that they tend to do it. And we can still see that today, that oftentimes power, status, education comes hand in hand with those who want to come against Christianity. We would likely agree that we can see that in our own culture even today. And the problem here is that we would swing and do the exact opposite kind of partiality. (laughs) That we'd be like, down with the rich. (laughs) Take them down. They're the ones that cause all the problems. And the helpful thing to note is what Paul said to us in 1 Corinthians 1. Remember, he said, not all of you. He didn't say none of you. (laughs) None of you. There are rich people that the Lord saves. Because the issue isn't the amount of money they have, but it's a heart issue. And it's a heart issue that tends to go hand in hand when you have social status, when you have money, that it's very hard not to be prideful. 
And it's very hard to be humble and admit, as James talked about earlier, that all that riches will do you no good before the Lord Jesus Christ someday. Right? That's what he's looking for. Jesus spoke of that. He talked about it with the rich young ruler in Mark 10 who could not sell everything he had to follow Jesus. We see a similar thing in Luke 12 with, with the man who's so confident that now he's stored up all of his wealth. Things are going to go good with him all of his life. And he finds out from God his life's going to be required of him that very night. You know, I, I dare to guess that for most people in this room, most people even in our city, their struggles further on this side of the problem than the other side. The struggle to use wisely and goodly what God has given to you, to trust him with it all, with humility, instead of needing to trust him daily just to even provide for you. You know, both of these two arguments, don't overlook the poor, and do you realize that the rich and the powerful, often the ones that are causing problems, are both part of a larger argument for James on why we shouldn't show evil, sinful partiality, and he bases it in God's law. He says this, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and you are convicted by the law as transgressors. Transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Therefore, if you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Jesus brings, or James brings us back to something that Jesus often brought people back to. The very law of God, an, an example of his righteous requirements of us. You know, James calls it the royal law, the law of the kingdom. Jesus usually nails it down and talks about the greatest commandments. And then we see them throughout scripture in multiple places. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. As Rev's motto says, love God, love others. You know, we see this in several places like Matthew 22, Mark 12. Behind the requirement to not show partiality is a reminder to love your neighbor as yourself, to think about what it would be like to be in their position and what they're going through, to, to love them in the ways that you would want to be loved. But, most, but just as important for James, he, he also brings up the reality that we can't fail at any part of partiality and be seen as good. We can't let any peace slip in. I mean, he says literally, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law's transgressors. That's why he makes the analogy to adultery and murder. If you knew someone who was fantastically devoted to their spouse, one of the best spouses you've ever seen, yet they kill their neighbor, you're not going to say, well done, good job. You did a really great job with this. I mean, that's the same idea that James wants us to see about our partiality. We can't act like I'm not a racist, I'm not a sexist, but you know what? Yeah, I don't really care for those people. I don't really care for that. It's the same sin that's sneaking in and we can no longer be seen as right before God because of that. <clears throat> and James started here in James 2.1. It says, my brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in the Lord Jesus the glorious Lord. I mean, this passage is begging us to examine ourselves. It's begging us to look and say, where am I showing partiality in a sinful and an evil way? You know, maybe exactly this version of preferencing rich over poor. Now, let's be honest. Most of our jobs, whether it's in sales, whether it's in service, whether it's money management, they all preference people who have money to give us for something over the people who don't have money to give us. It's very hard work 
to make sure that we don't only relate to and care for those who can give us something to perpetuate this kind of economic move that we do back and forth in our jobs. Even pastors can be tempted to try to relate mostly to people who can give money or have high social status and try to couch it underneath the version of at least it will help the gospel go forward. We all need to care about this. So many of us are drawn to people in positions of power because they can help us in so many ways. How do you not preference them? How do you be sure not to ignore those that aren't always the people that you would want to think about that are different than you? And if I left you there this morning, you would probably feel the weight that a lot of people feel that they struggle with in James. This feeling that I need to go home now and clean myself up. (laughs) This feeling that I am such a failure. (laughs) I do this in so many ways that I don't even realize, how how do I make myself look good now? How do I make sure that I can prove that I am a Christian? Everyone should believe that about me. And that's not at all where James leaves us in this section. James says this. He says, so speak and so act as those who are judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James knows what's been going on. He knows that he's been telling these Jewish Christians, go back to the law. Look, you're failing. You're failing. You're not good. And then he changes the conversation. He comes back to a phrase that was in, uh, in Jack's section last week. This idea of the law of liberty. Realize that you are judged under a different kind of law now. Everything's not the same. You know, Doug Moo, who's a great scholar, and I've really appreciated his writings on James and, and so many other New Testament uh, books, has said several things about James that I thought were so fantastic that I kind of collected them, and I'm, I mushed them into one quote for you. So here's the quote. You'll never find it in this form, but the sentences are all there. <laughs> I think this is what we need to hear out of this this morning. God's gracious acceptance of us does not end our obligation to obey him. It sets it on a new footing. No longer is God's law a threatening, confining burden. The believer in himself will always deserve God's judgment. Conformity to the royal law is never perfect as it must be. The will of God now confronts us as a law of liberty, an obligation that we discharge in the joyful knowledge that God has both liberated us from the penalty of sin and given us in his spirit the power to obey his will. To use James' own description, this law is an implanted word written on our heart that has the power to save us. Our merciful attitude and actions will count as evidence of the presence of Christ within us. And it is on the basis of this union, the union with Jesus, with the one who perfectly fulfilled the law for us, that we can have confidence of vindication at the judgment. We, we are required to walk out our faith and to do what God requires of us, but we no longer do it because we are proving that we are worthy. We're not. We see that again and again through scripture. We are massive hypocrites. The world is right. We are awful at doing what we say we should do, but we know that God loved us in Jesus in our sin, knowing our sin, dying for our sin, and that God has given us his very righteousness, Jesus, and his very means for righteousness, his Holy Spirit, that we might live rightly. That's the law of liberty for us now. 
we now get to, are allowed to, are welcomed into walking a life as God's beloved sons and daughters. We now know him face to face, so we get to say, I know him. I know what he wants from me. I know what he's asking of me. Our union with Christ made that true, and it empowers us now to live rightly. And when we see that reality of what God has done for us, it should almost bring us to tears that God loved us so much to release us from a law that brought only condemnation and free us to a law that actually brings liberty. One that just asks us to live out what we really are now, who we are because of who has loved us. A life that is joy because we've already been brought face to face with God and Jesus. We know him intimately and we want others to know him that way as well. So James says to us, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The author and missionary David Platt says this about that last section, mercy. You can tell who's received mercy from God by the way they show mercy to others. That's what James is poking at with partiality. Do you know how to show the same kind of mercy that God knows how to show? People are very different from you. People who are maybe failing to show the same kind of mercy that he has shown to us in Jesus. That should destroy any kind of evil partiality that is existing in our lives still today. Your life, my life can be pointers to the breadth and the depth of God's love in choosing messed up people like us to be his beloved children. Why would we want to hold that back from anyone? Our lives are meant to demonstrate that, that mercy triumphs over judgment. Would you pray with me? Father God, would we grasp the enormity of that statement, the enormity that mercy has triumphed over judgment, that in Jesus Christ at the cross, you dealt with us mercifully by pouring out judgment on your only son. Lord God, would that, would that tear down any walls of partiality that are sinful in our lives? Father God, we are so thankful in the ways that you have made us, the things that we love that can demonstrate your love for a very vast and wonderful world that you created. But God, we know we twist that so quickly. We twist it and, and we tend to show evil preference to different things that we ought not, to, to be partial against people in ways that you never would be. Lord God, would we be single-minded like you, single-minded in our love, single-minded in our mercy, and single-minded in our devotion to live and walk this life as beloved sons and daughters, broken and sinful, vessels that are cracked, yet knowing that through that, Lord God, you get all the glory because of what you have done in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit revolution22.org. We encourage you to not neglect meeting together as believers. And may you continue to love God and love others.